Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. I just got, became live. And I want to bring greetings to you from your fellowship family. As Pastor Ronald has mentioned, I serve as the national president of the Association of Churches of which your church is a part of. Whether you recognize it or not, you're part of something much larger than yourselves. And I want to just thank Pastor Ronald and the leaders for this opportunity to come and just address the church family. I wish everybody was here to be able to do that, but it's wonderful that we're able to do this virtually. On any given Sunday, we have over 500 churches across Canada doing this very same thing. On any given Sunday, we have about 10 to 12 different languages being shared in our congregations across the country as well. And so I bring greetings to you from your fellowship family. You are part of a national body of local fellowship churches, uh, over 500 from coast to coast to coast. You're also part of a regional body of 277 churches, and you're part of an association of a smaller number of about a dozen churches in this local area that we hope that the churches will start working together to be on mission in the name of Jesus. But I just want to welcome you all in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity. I want to just share a little bit about what's been going on amongst our churches in the last several months before we enter into God's Word. Uh, I come from the National Office, which is in Guelph, Ontario, and we care on behalf of our local churches, a number of generally international and some domestic ministries, and we gather our churches together as sister churches on mission together, and we can do so much more together than just by ourselves. And we have an international department of which your pastor, Pastor Ronald, is also one of our missions personnel. And so it's, we're just so very grateful for Ronald and his ministry. Uh, we also have a humanitarian relief and justice department called FAIR, of which we've been raising some funds this, for this Christmas that will go towards some of the ministry of what Secret Christian Fellowship is doing in Sri Lanka. The January FAIR appeal is going to be exclusively for the ministry that's going on in Sri Lanka. And so we praise God for the opportunity to partner with you, particularly as a church family, to have our churches across Canada raise some funds to just bless, bless people, bless the villages that I had an opportunity just two years ago to go visit with Pastor Ronald. And uh, yeah, just, uh, I, just tremendous blessing what you're doing amongst the people in those different uh, village areas in Sri Lanka. And we're grateful for the partnership we have to be able to bless in the name of Jesus. We also have a francophone ministry in which we recognize in Quebec we have a special mission field. Uh, unlike anywhere else in all of the Americas, whether it's North, South, or Central America, francophone Canadians are one of the lowest uh, percentage lowest people who have know Jesus as Savior. At only 0.8 of 1% self-identifying as evangelical Christians, that makes Francophone Canadians one of the least reached people groups in the entire world. 
And so we gather churches across Canada. Your church could be one of them to go into partnership and starting church plants in Quebec. In the last five years, we've been able to plant some five, uh, 13 different church plants in Quebec through the partnerships right across Canada in our churches. We also have a chaplaincy ministry. We have well over 100 fellowship chaplains in every conceivable uh, 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 venue that you can imagine from uh, truck chaplains to first responder chaplains to hospital chaplains. We have military chaplains. Our military asks, are very interested in fellowship chaplains. They say they're a quality that they're looking for in their chaplains. And so we, um, we just praise God that they really are an extension of the local church in closed communities that pastors and churches and God's people are not allowed just to walk into these places. You can't just walk into a police station and seek to share Jesus. Our chaplains are allowed. They're welcomed. And so they are doing ministry in areas that we can't go into nowadays anyway. And we do a number of other things, but I just wanted to give you some indication. This last year, we were able to appoint some eight new missionaries to go out onto the global field. And these missionaries are now trying to seek to raise their deputation, their funds to be able to go to places like uh, Pakistan uh, and uh, Lebanon and some other countries around the world. So it gives you some indication of what we as a gathering of churches right across Canada are doing together. And I'm grateful for the partnership we can have with Seeker Christian Fellowship. Let's just, uh, just ask the Lord to bless our time before we enter into his word. Father, we are truly grateful for the opportunity to open your word. Every time we do, Father, it's an opportunity for you to speak to us. And you have a word for each and every individual in the auditorium here or virtually online. And I just pray, Father, that through the ministry of your spirit, you'll speak and that we be wise and prudent to obey for your glory, but for our great good. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to, uh, to uh, Samuel. Pastor Ronald has just read the passage in, um, in Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through, th- that's 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. But to start us off, I want to just tell you a story. Some of you may or may not be aware of, of probably one of the most famous 19th century American authors there, there, there was. And his name, of course, Mark Twain. He wrote Huckleberry Finn and some other, other uh, books, and any high school student generally has to read one of those books, generally around grade 10. He was a humorist, but there was also a very dark side to Mark Twain. He wasn't a church-going man. He had a tremendous uh, degree of a, a jaded view of the church and the gospel, not so much the gospel, but God's people. But he told a story of a of a man who did an experiment. And he brought a large cage with a door, and he put a dog and a cat into the cage. And he, he wanted to see how long it would take for those two animals to tear each other apart. They're mortal enemies, at least we're told, dogs and cats. And he said, what actually happened after a few adjustments, they seemed to get along. So he said, I upped the ante on this experiment. He opened the door, let the dog and cat in, and he put in a big goose, a nasty, snapping goose, a a billy goat, and a big hog. And he was sure these three cantankerous barn animals were going to not get along, and there would be trouble. But again, after some 
time and some adjustments, these three animals seemed to get along. He was a little bit surprised, and so he said, I upped the ante on the experiment, and I opened up the door, and I let that, that goose and that, that billy goat and that big hog out of that, and you said, you know what I threw in there? I threw in there a Roman Catholic, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, and an Anglican. And he said, in less than a minute, there wasn't a living thing left in that cage. Now, that was some of his jaded view of the church coming through. It's not been my experience after 35 years of ministry, quite frankly, but that was generally his view and the view of many people in society. Because what they recognize in the church is a place where you should be able to find love. I mean, even today in this post-Christian society, people still view the church as a place where loving kindness. They may not be able to explain the gospel or explain what it means in the change and transformation of a, of a human heart, but they recognize something should have. This should be a place where you find loving kindness. Or what we refer to as grace. Grace. The word is not really understood. It's not really well defined in everyday language nowadays. In fact, modern translations, including the ESV, don't use the word grace necessarily, but kindness, loving kindness, is often the new word that is translated. Has anyone done something to you that you didn't deserve? A good thing. They paid a debt. They extended kindness to you and you weren't expecting it, nor did you even deserve it, but they, they did. I remember coming up to a station uh, attendant at a parking place to pay my parking bill. I was in my car, I was paying my parking bill. He said, oh, sir, you don't have to pay. That car that's just pulling out in front of you, he paid your bill. I have no idea who that person was. That is loving kindness. That is a form of grace. That is receiving something I don't deserve. I've done nothing for that kindness. That's what God does for us every single day. We receive from him what we do not deserve, and yet he gives it to us bountifully. This is God's grace. In fact, the Old Testament, because we're in a story in the Old Testament, the Old Testament word that is translated grace is the, old, is the Hebrew word chassid, C-H-E, chassid. And the best translation that they could find for grace or loving kindness is this word chassid, but literally, literally the Hebrew word means to stoop or to bend to stoop or to bend. And the picture of God choosing to stoop or to bend in deference to Pastor Ronald or myself is extraordinary when you think about it. What we deserve is His wrath. He's a just God. We are at enmity with God, the New Testament tells us, and yet God chooses instead to extend loving kindness, to bend, to stoop. Donald Barnhouse, a Bible commentary of another generation, said this, wrote this, Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward, that's affection. But love that stoops is grace. A love that stoops. God's grace. Do you know something? We're coming up to Christmas. Now imagine with me this. 
You go and you buy all these gifts for your family and friends and you're using your credit card often because it's going to have to be online and virtual right now. And then what happens in January is the misery of having to pay the bill, right? No one likes that. And you go to the bank to pay the bill. Let's say you're still doing that. You're going to the bank to pay the bill and you're speaking to the teller and the teller says, you won't believe this, Mr. Jones, but I got to tell you something. A pastor, Ronald J.S. Seelan, was this in here yesterday, and he said, I'm paying Pastor Steve's entire visa bill for Christmas, and I want to tell you something, I'm going to pay off his visa bill every month for the rest of his life. Now, I know Pastor Ronald quite well, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> I know that. But it's a poor illustration of what's happening in our lives every single day of our lives. What do you suppose the debt is on a one-year-old sin? Jesus paid for it. He's already paid for it. This is good news. Sometimes we forget just how good the good news really is. And people do want to hear good news. They like hearing about good news. It's how we share it in the winsome ways recognizing the culture we live in, that we need to be people of loving kindness, people of grace, because people see and feel and hear the good news when we're people of grace. And that's what I want to talk about. And the way I want to talk about it is I want to go all the way back 3,000 years to an Old Testament story that you probably haven't read since you were in Sunday school as a child. But this is a wonderful story. I remember th uh, almost 40 years ago when I first came to Christ while well, an art college student, I came across this story and I fell in love with it. I'm not going to take time to read it because Pastor Ronald's already done that, but I'll make reference to an, the verses I we walked through. But let me give you some background of what's going on in this wonderful, I hope, familiar story in your life. We go back 3,000 years to a time in which when a king is toppled, the rest of his family are in deep trouble. They would be viewed as rivals, and the next king coming in would either exile them, imprison them, or exterminate them. Have them he'd send out his assassins and kill off the prince and princesses so that there would be no rivals. And this is what's going on. David hears this horrible news of his king, King Saul, and Prince Jonathan, his closest friend in the world. There's a dual tragedy in the land when they're killed in battle. Both of these the king and the prince are dead. And he grieves. But as a leader, he quickly takes command. And Saul's family scatter like cockroaches. If you want to turn to the next slide here, we come to get some background here. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, this is just five chapters before chapter 9, of course, we read, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. Now, why do you suppose I have a cockroach on that slide? You're probably asking that. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. When I was newly married, Marilyn and I could not find an apartment if our life depended on it. There were so few in the mid-80s. In, in, in Toronto, and we finally got a place at Young and Shepherd, and it wasn't really a nice or, nor clean place, but that's all we could find. And my wife is a fastidious individual. She's, a, she's an acute care nurse, so everything is particular, has to be clean. 
You could eat off the floor. But no matter how hard she tried, there were cockroaches. And so I used to say, honey, as we went into the kitchen, I'd say, close your eyes. I'd cover her eyes, and I'd turn on the lights, and I'd see for just a moment all the cockroaches go. <laughs> and then I said, okay, you can look. This is the picture I want you to have when you think of what's going on in Israel at the moment Saul and Jonathan are killed. Their entire family, and it would have been a large family, the royal family would have been large, like cockroaches. There was pandemonium. There was panic. They go, <laughs> they take off because they know their lives are in jeopardy. They know their lives. So they take off. Now, what happens? David takes command. In this, he's in his 20s at this point. He's not an older man. He takes command. Now, we move from chapter 4 here to chapter 9, the passage Pastor Ronald's read, and that's about a 20-year, two decades later. And David is now sort of entering into middle age. Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's young son, in the midst of that pandemonium, his nurse has dropped him as, a, as an accident, and somehow, we don't know fully what happened, but he's somehow crippled. He's lame in both his feet for the rest of his life. He's now watched, he's now watched this upstart named David take over, really, his rightful throne for the last 20 years, and he has become the hero of God's people. He, he doesn't lose in battle. In, in the previous chapter, chapter 8, starting at verse 12, it names off all the nations that David and his, his, his armies have conquered, the Amalekites, the uh, Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, and so on. It just lists one after, in verse 13, it says, David is famous. That's the word they use. He's famous. And Mephibosheth has been quietly living in a little place called Lodabar, watching this for the last two decades, really seeing this upstart take his throne. Israel is respected by its enemies. They know that they and their God Jehovah don't lose in battle. And so now after all of these battles and he has extended the the lands of Israel, when he started it was 6,000 square miles. It's now 60,000 square miles that take up the kingdom. This is the golden age of Israel. David is, is done well before the Lord. And in starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find David in the, in the evening, sort of probably a little nostalgic. He's happy, he's healthy, he's, he's grateful for all that's gone on in his life these last 20 years. He's in a moment of nostalgia thinking back to his best friend, his best buddy Jonathan, and he remembers the promise he's made to Jonathan. And we read in verse 1, he says this, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul? Because he assumes they're all gone. He may not have done anything about getting rid of that family. David probably didn't, but he knows that others would have done it on his behalf. And so he's asking honestly the question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness. That's the word chassid. Chassid. That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. In other words, he's saying, is there anyone left that I can extend grace to grace to, loving kindness, for God has shown me this grace these last two decades. He has shown me this kindness. Is there anyone in that house that I can do because of Jonathan, 
for the sake of Jonathan. And what you realize here is we have what is often referred to as a, as a type. Jonathan serves here as a type of Christ. It's a theological term that basically says it's an Old Testament allusion to a New Testament truth. And David sees in this relationship he's had with Jonathan that he wants to show kindness, not because they deserve it, not because they merit it in any way, but because of what Jonathan and the promises made through his best friend Jonathan. Then in verses 2 to 4, we find out one of the servants of David who was also a servant of King Saul. His name, Ziba. And he says, yes, yeah, David, there is. His name is Mephibosheth. But you definitely get the sense from Ziba that you know, he's not overly anxious for David to have anything to do with Mephibosheth because he kind of views Mephibosheth as a bit of a coward. He's a bit of a hermit living in this place far away. He's not one of the brave young men, the courtiers, the, the, the army commanders who, who walked around the halls of the palace. And the men, the, the mighty men that David had, had brought together over these last couple decades. He's, 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 he's an individual who's handicapped. He's an individual who's a bit of a hermit, a loner. He's, he's off by himself. He doesn't want anything to do with you. You get that sense, at least telegraphed between the verses, that Zeb doesn't really want David really to reach out to him. So he seeks, he seeks to dissuade David. But you get definitely right away from David this sense in which he's not looking for the man's resume. He doesn't really care what the man has done or not done. He's going to extend loving kindness despite the fact that he's done nothing for him. He doesn't deserve the king's loving kindness. This, this young man doesn't in any way merit or should be credited anything he's done because he's done nothing. David is going to extend loving kindness purely because of his relationship with Jonathan. And we receive God's loving kindness purely because of a relationship we can have with Jesus Christ. You see the illusion between the Old and New Testament? Don't tell me the Old Testament talk, doesn't talk about grace. It does. It's dripping with it all over the pages of the Old Testament. Mephibosheth, where is he? We're told he's living, verse 4, in Lodabar. Lodabar is basically a Hebrew word that has been transliterated into our English Bible. The word Lodabar literally into English means barren place. This, this young man has been in a barren place for most of his life. He was a very young child when he was brought there. And I went looking in my Bible atlas where Lodabar is. And it's, it's sort of where in Syria is. I mean, you go straight up from Jerusalem and you hit the Sea of Galilee and then you make a bit of a, a right turn and keep going north into the desert, into the wilderness in Syria. And you'll come to this place. They found a tell or a little, you know, place where all these different cities have been destroyed and it's a little bump in the landscape. And Lodabar is in there. It was in the middle. It was a sanctuary city where people would go when they're in trouble, when they're trying to hide from their past, they raced to a sanctuary city. Lodabar was one of them. These were where people were hiding out, not wanting to be found. These people were murderers. They owed people money. They raced to Lodabar. Mephibosheth did the same. He's now been living in the city. It's a, it's a barren place. And what is so ironic about the story is this. Mephibosheth is desperately looking for grace, loving kindness, mercy. He wants it all back, and he's running away from the very man who's willing to give it to him. He's running away from David. He thinks David's out to kill him. David's not out to kill him. 
David wants to show loving kindness. That's what's so ironic about this. Because when you live in Lodabar, when you live in a spiritually barren place long enough, you start to try to convince yourself, Lodabar is not such a bad place after all. Do you have friends like that? Neighbors? Family members? Who have been living in spiritual barrenness for so long, they're actually, they have actually come to believe this is not so bad. And you know, when I die, I'm going to go, I don't know, maybe I'll go to hell where everybody parties. They have no idea what hell is. Separation from God for eternity. You live in Lodabar long enough, you can convince yourself with all kinds of silly notions of what is truth when it's not truth at all. So I want to take, just take you on a little bit of a... I'm, a, I'm an artist, so let me paint a picture for you. Verses 45. David says, go get Mephibosheth. And he would have sent one of his, those mighty men that walked around the palace, and he would have been in a chariot. And very few chariots came to Lodabar. It's a barren place. And uh, the guard on the watch wall would have called out, someone approaches, and Mephibosheth in the city and the little town would have heard that, and he would have, and he, his entire life, has been waiting for the day that he's going to be finally found out. Just like so many other people living in Lodabar, they're, 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 they're hiding from their past. Do you know people like that? And he hears, and, and, then, and then moments later, the guard yells out, it's one of the king's men, and he comes in with the chariot, and, and Mephibosheth is now, you know, he's got crutches, he's a lamed man, he's, he's grown, and uh, he, he makes his way to his apartment, gets into his apartment, he, he barricades the door, he's, he gets into his room, he gets underneath his bed, and he's cowering, the coward he is. And he hears the chariot roll up in front, and the door is open, and then the door to his apartment is bashed open, and the door to his room is open, and one of the king's men looks down underneath the bed, and he says, Mephibosheth, King David wants to see you. You see, when you live in Lodabar, spiritual barrenness, long enough, not only do you try to convince yourself Lodabar is not such a bad place, but you actually start to believe the lies they say about your Savior. Mephibosheth had actually started to believe the lies that David was really after his hide, his head, which was not the case at all. And we live in a society where people have started to convince themselves that Jesus the Savior is actually not a friend of sinners. He's our enemy. We live in an ABC society, anything but Christianity. Jesus is fair game, more than any other religion I can think of in our society. Because if you live in spiritual barrenness long enough, you actually start to believe the lies they say about the Savior. I, I remember reading a story of a woman in Texas who was in a grocery store doing her grocery shopping, and she left the grocery store with two um, bags of groceries, went to her car, opened up the car, came in, and put the two bags of groceries in the passenger seat. She took her keys out, put it in the ignition, then went to adjust her rearview mirror, and she noticed in her rearview mirror that there was a, pickup, a lot of pickup trucks in Texas. And there was a guy in a pickup truck behind her, and he was very animated. His hands were, and he was yelling, and she went, whoa, what's going on? And he was seemingly yelling at her, and she got a little bit creeped out, and so she quickly turned on the ignition, and she got out of that place. Much to her chagrin, she noticed he was pulling out behind her. 
So she got out onto the roadway from the uh, grocery parking lot, and she was driving a little quicker than normal, and he was keeping pace with her. She got onto the freeway, onto the highway, and she was racing down the highway, weaving in and out of traffic, and he was keeping pace with her. She was horrified. She was terrified. She pulled off the exit into her own subdivision, raced to her house, pulled into her driveway. She left the groceries. Who cares about the groceries? She took her keys and she was jumbling the keys as she was running to the front door of her house, trying to get her front door key ready to put it into the lock right away to get to safety. And as she was jumbling to put it in the lock, she noticed the guy in the pickup truck had pulled in behind her car. He got out of the truck, but he didn't run towards her. He started running towards her car. And she said, I stopped to watch what is going on here. And when he got to her car, he opened up the rear door of her car and pounced on an intruder who was in the back seat laying there with a big butcher's knife. Twenty minutes earlier, in that grocery parking lot, he had been saying from his truck, Lady, get out of your car! There's a crazy man in the He's got a knife! He's got to get out of your car! And for 20 minutes, she'd been running away from her Savior. You see, when you live in Lodabar long enough, not only do you try to convince yourself Lodabar is not such a bad place after all, and you start to believe the lies they say about your Savior, you actually start to convince yourself, in fact, your Savior is your enemy. And this is what we're dealing with in our own society, where Jesus is, one time people chose to treat him as with indifference, but now there seems to be far more hostility. So how do we break that stuff down? I'm saying it's through this, loving kindness, being people of grace. It just breaks down the barriers and builds bridges. Because it's hard to be angry at someone who says they love Jesus and they actually believe a man rose from the dead, as crazy as that sounds, when he's there for me, when she is kind to me. This is our greatest evangelistic tool, loving kindness, to be people of grace. And finally, when... Um, when um, Mephibosheth is brought to David and he finally realizes that David's intent was always to show loving kindness, he is broken. And in verse 8, he finally repents before his Savior, so to speak. And he says, I feel like a dead dog, if we can move to verse 8 here. I feel like, why are you showing kindness to a dead dog like me? And, Jesus, and uh, David says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness. Do you know one phrase that Jesus used more than any other? You can check it out for yourself in the New Testament. When he met people, greeted people, what came out of his mouth? Don't be afraid. Fear not. You see, people recognize in Jesus something so extraordinary, so, so otherworldly in many ways that they actually were fearful of what that meant. And what we need to do is break down those barriers of the Christian gospel through our own acts of loving kindness. If we can move to the next slide. Mephibosheth bowed down respectfully. Who is your servant? You should show kindness to a dead dog like me. Is there anything more pathetic than a dead dog on the side of the road? I remember being in Indonesia a few years ago and I went to a marketplace that was just one of the saddest places. Children, you know, 
not even wearing clothing, filthy. And, and I remember just looking down. I just looked down, and there was a, a cat in the throes of dying. It had just been run over by some car. And I just look at that cat, and it's, it stuck with me in my, just in the, in the last moments of death. And I said, there's just nothing more pathetic than the luck of a dead dog. This is what Mephibosheth recognized in his sin, and he repented and received the kindness of his king. This is what we want our friends and families. Those of you who are in the church family who are still questioning the Christ of the Savior, he just wants to show loving kindness, saving grace. But you must repent and recognize you are dead in your sins. You're a dead dog who needs to be made alive in Christ. Well, David keeps his word. He brings him into his family. There's a sense in which we are adopted into God's family. David adopts this new son into his family. Another beautiful allusion from the Old into the New Testament teaching. And he keeps his word in verses 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13. We read that he keeps his word. He asks his servant Ziba, who has all these sons and servants, to basically become the servant for this grandson of King Saul. And he gives him back all of Saul's lands and property. He becomes a very wealthy man. He would have probably had his own side palace within David's consortium of palaces. And he lives like a prince in a palace, leaving the barrenness of Lodabar to receive the plenty and bounty of Jerusalem with King David. And in our last slide here, I have given you everything Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. So let me once again paint a picture for you. Imagine an evening in which David is in his great banquet hall. He's sitting at the front end of his table and there's a plenty, a bounty of food awaiting his family. And David had a large family, over 20 sons. And then his family start to come in and in comes his beautiful daughter Tamar and she comes in and she sits down. Then comes in one of his sons, Ammon, who, who comes and sits at the left of David and beside his half-sister Tamar. And then Solomon, who's been in his study, in his library all day, the wise one, studying and studying, studying God's word and studying history. He comes out of his study and he comes in and he sits at the right hand of David. And in come twos and threes of different sons, pockets of coming from different places in the palace. They come to have dinner with their father, King David, and they come and sit at the table. In comes Absalom. Oh, yeah. That man's man, that handsome man with the long curly black hair that got in trouble, hang him on the tree at one point, as you remember the story. He comes in and he comes up and he sits down beside Solomon and gives him one of these and straddles the chair around and hot, just straddles over that chair. He's kind of a guy, you know. Not always getting along so much with Solomon. But he sits down. And then comes Joab, the great commander of the armies these last two decades. Ramrod straight as a soldier. He comes and he marches in and he, he sits down at his place at the chair that he would sit every evening having dinner with the king. And then they waited. And they waited. It was almost every evening like this until they heard the tap, 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 tap of Mephibosheth coming down the marble hallway with his crutches. Tap, tap. Coming into the great banquet room, he comes to the end of the table and he collapses in his chair. He's exhausted just from that small walk. And he apologizes to King David once again. I'm so sorry, King, for being late once again at this wonderful table. And David's response to Mephibosheth is simply this. Mephibosheth, 
Don't ever apologize. I am just so grateful to have you share my bounty. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? Every evening when he came to the king's table and received what he knew he did not deserve. Daily, he received it anyway. Is that not the story that we can tell others in winsome, wonderful ways that will win them to the gospel? I believe it is. And we'll break down some of the indifference and hostility people have with our Savior. Ernest Hemingway, arguably one of the um, greatest American writers of the 20th century, who was raised with uh, grandparents who had been Christian missionaries. His mother was very involved in the local church that they attended. She was the worship leader in uh, Chicago or outside Chicago. She tried to raise her son as with the, the Christian with the good news, the gospel, and he was just a renegade. He was a rebel. He just said, had nothing to do with it. He, in fact, he said later in life, I hate my mother and I hate her Savior. But he loved Spain. Spent many years there, fought in the Civil War in the 1930s and went to the bullfights and wrote about this in, their bo- in his books. And he had a small short story that many people don't know about. It was a story of a family, a father, who loved his sons. And one son who became a rebel said, Dad, I'm out of here. I'm going to the big city of Madrid, the Spanish family. And he left. A familiar story if you know Luke chapter 15. You know Hemingway must have been listening to his mom at some point as a child. And this son lived it up. Lived it up. You know, a raucous, debauched lifestyle. Until finally the father was yearning to be in relationship once again with his estranged son. And so he, he put a small advertisement in the largest circulation newspaper in Madrid called the El Libra. And it was just a short little adver- advertisement in the paper. And it said simply this, Paco. That was his son's name, Paco. Now, Paco is a very common name in Spain. It'd be equivalent to our Paul or Peter, I think. A lot of people would be called, a lot of sons would be called Paco. But he wrote, Paco, meet me this Tuesday at Hotel Montana. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Love, Papa. Put it in the newspaper. The son saw the advertisement. And on that Tuesday, the father walked towards Hotel Montana, this beautiful palatial hotel with a large courtyard that surrounded the hotel. And as he turned the corner to walk towards the hotel, as he turned the corner, what he saw before him were over 800, 800 young men, all with the name Paco, looking for love from Papa. There are so many people in our communities, in our families, who are looking for this grace, this love from their Papa from their heavenly Father. And in His wisdom, He has chosen to use you and me to be agents of that grace. It is what will win our society. If we would be people that are not argumentative and cantankerous and putting people down because society is going to hell in a handbasket. No, we win them with our loving kindness. We speak truth. We must speak truth. But in love. Loving kindness. This 
is the most indispensable tool we have in our evangelistic toolbox, loving kindness. Let's be people of grace. And Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word that you love us, that you extend this love. You've done it to so many of us already and we have received this gift of salvation. But we long as we enter into this Christmas season, we long for opportunity to share this mercy and grace to others, family members, neighbors, friends at school, that they too might know Jesus as we know him. Give us, Father, both the wisdom and the courage, the humbleness and the boldness to share this message this Christmas. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.